0: Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services, and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues.
1: Today, we're more distributed and more digitally connected than ever before. Digital communications are now the lifeblood of the enterprise. With Smarsh, you can leverage all of your communications as a strategic asset. Smarsh enables companies to transform oversight into foresight by surfacing business-critical signals in more than 80 digital communications channels, from email to WhatsApp to Zoom and many more. Regulated organizations of all sizes rely upon the Smarsh portfolio of cloud-native, AI-enabled digital communications capture, retention, and oversight solutions to help them identify regulatory, and reputational risk within their communications data before those risks become fines or headlines. Smarsh serves a global client base spanning the top banks in North America, Europe, and Asia, along with other leading financial firms and various government agencies. To discover more about the future of communications capture, archiving, and oversight, visit www.smarsh.com. People are, are naturally gonna be
2: quite wary of going somewhere where they are being so strong on that view. So I'd be very surprised if it doesn't have quite a negative impact in the next 6, 12, 18 months.
0: Today's guest outlines why some of the largest financial services firms in London risk serious knowledge gaps in the so-called engine rooms of their compliance teams and reveals the skills most in demand as recruitment for compliance roles reaches record highs. Tom Boulderston manages the compliance and financial crime team at headhunter Barclay Simpson where he specialises in placing compliance staff within banks, asset managers, hedge funds, and private equity firms. Hi, Tom. Welcome to Following the Rules. Hi, Lucy. So let's start with what the job market is like right now.
2: The compliance and financial crime job market is as busy as I think we've seen it for a number of years. The only similar time that I think that we could probably link it back to would be the post-recovery from the 08-09 crash, there to about sort of 2012 and probably 2014 were the only other times really probably in the last seven eight years that we've seen anything quite like this and that's really across the board covering all things from regulatory compliance most areas of financial crime i would say that the majority of that hiring as ever is in that sort of middle ground so if we were to equate it to banking parlance sort of avp vp manager senior manager whatever you might describe it as but there really is hiring across the board
0: so, what's driving that behaviour?
2: There's a number of factors. So, I think that the pent up recruitment that hadn't been done in the last couple of years, you had 2019, you had all the Brexit uncertainty, and uncertainty is just never a help to recruitment. Whenever people aren't sure what's coming down the line, the easiest decision is to make no decision and say we're going to hold off making hires. So, we saw that affect the market quite badly in 2019. Obviously, then the pandemic struck early 2020, which actually had started off like it was going to be quite a busy year and things didn't really pick up again until probably mid 2021. There were a a few fluctuating moments within that and then really after the summer of 2021 it really did start to pick up. I think a lot of people were like right well we're learning to now live with COVID and so realize that we can't keep putting off hiring decisions. The regulators look upon things wasn't lightning. Teams were becoming quite understaffed And the skills needed to be updated so i think that was probably one of the biggest drivers i think the flip side of that as well is that during that time candidates even if there were roles were struggling to find the motivation to move again they were concerned about what was coming and there's always that concern of being this last in the door first out and so people decided well even that time i'm not going to move and then since then again i think candidates have also decided I'm now going to start looking. So you've got a mixture of newly created positions and replacement positions all driving the market generally. And then I think that there is lots of news stories, with, if you look within the financial crime side, where the regulator is looking into general issues with banks and other institutions and are putting pressure on them to make sure that they have you know, increase the way they are staffing their teams, upskilling teams there's also been quite a drive to bring in new technologies so the term reg tech is one of the things that you'll hear quite a lot about these days and while in theory that could reduce the number of people within the market as it you know more is done autonomously, the reality is without human oversight The AI is still relatively simplistic. All it's doing is it's taking things that have been done previously on spreadsheet or manually and automating it. But you still need lots of people checking that because we can't simply sign over systems and say, well, the AI is checking it for us. We're okay." So I think there's a number of factors, but I do think that that the post recovery is is probably the biggest driving factor and every time as I say when we saw it when you had the dip in 2008-9 the recovery periods really do drive quite a lot of recruitment.
0: Mm-hmm. So how much busier are you now in comparison to say this time last year?
2: Probably four or five times busier so we've just had the busiest Q1 that we've ever had as a business. We started in
0: 1989.
2: Wow. I mean Last week, as far as we can tell, and we haven't got all of the figures, but we had the the biggest billing week of, of all time last week by quite some distance. And that record's been broken four times in the last quarter.
0: That's amazing. And are salaries increasing in line with demand?
2: So that's the interesting thing. So, I mean, you'll hear a lot of people say, yes, I think the answer is a little bit more nuanced than that. I think it depends on the sector. I think that the big headline grabbing numbers of increases are probably being seen in sectors that traditionally underpaid by comparison. So I think the biggest area would be the fintech businesses that if you went back even 18 months, two years ago, we're trying to recruit people at quite senior levels and paying them mid-level money they did try and supplement that with long-term incentives so share options things like that i mean while some people no doubt have done very very well at that the truth is most people don't stay long enough to realize the value of those shares and in fact just took a quite significant hit on their comp to make that move we've seen those salaries rise quite dramatically but really only to bring them close to being in line with banking and other areas They haven't probably exceeded that, and and, and whether or not they will, I don't know. And that's being driven by, A, the regulator is looking a lot more at those businesses now because they're starting to be a lot more disruptive. They are actually making quite a big impact within the industry. Um, And they've also got a lot more investment. Last year, it was certainly another record-breaking year for fintech investment within the UK in particular, which has established itself as one of the sort of central hubs globally for it. So I think that's where we've seen really big increases to the point where roles that were being recruited at quite a seen level and they were trying to pay about 70 or 80,000 for a role within a bank that would have been paying 140 or 150 they're now getting close to the numbers that the banks would have paid so that's quite dramatic increase in some of those i think within the banks they still are relatively set on the bandings that they've got we haven't seen a dramatic increase but what we have seen is probably a willingness to slightly stretch it and give people bigger increases within those bandings so previously if someone was on an avp within another bank and they were on say i don't know 55 60 The bank that they may move to would probably try and squeeze that down and be like, well, we could probably give them an uplift to maybe sort of 65, something like that. Whereas actually they have a banding to say like 75, 80, but they'd want some bandwidth so that they could give them uplifts without promoting. Whereas now we are seeing them saying, well, to allow us to get people without having to actually expand what we can do banding wise, they are paying people more towards the top end of that. So we have seen salaries rise, but the bandings that they could theoretically pay haven't actually risen within banks. Within asset managers and, and other businesses like that, the bigger asset managers pay equivalent base salaries to banks with probably slightly higher bonus potential. The private equity hedge fund world is the area where people can earn the highest salaries and by far the highest total comp. And there's been a slow and steady rise, but we have not seen a sudden dramatic increase in that. But we have seen everyone trying to pitch themselves more towards the top end of what an organization would be willing to pay. And generally speaking, they have paid it. And if they haven't, even if someone's accepted, quite often they've been countered. We've seen a situation where someone, I'm not sure that I would promote this as a way of doing things, but got, du- you know, got double countered. So countered where they were staying. And then the, the organization that they accepted countered them again, and they decided to take that. They might have burnt a few bridges by doing that, but it saw them nearly double their salary. That's an extreme example. Thanks. Most places are not willing to try and do that, but they are stretching what they can do.
0: And AVP and VP, just for the benefit of those that might not be familiar with, with those terms, what level of qualification are we talking about?
2: So AVP is three to six years, VP is six to 10.
0: Okay. Most of the recruitment interest is in the lower levels of the compliance industry currently. Is that correct? Or is there the same demand within the, the senior levels, the heads of department, the, the chief compliance officers?
2: Definitely the volume is being driven by the more mid-lower level these are the people that are doing the work within the teams and that's what generally needs to be beefed up because there is just a huge amount of work for them to get through so if we were to look at that in percentage terms i would have said about 70 to 80% is being driven by that side with generally speaking upskilling department heads is still happening but if you look at the smaller firms if people are are good and they're within a good firm they are often quite well looked after and there just tends to be less movement at that level, but it certainly does happen, but the volume is considerably less.
0: Right, and you mentioned that the adoption of RegTech is picking up as well. That's obviously something that's been happening over the course of the pandemic as city workers shifted into home office setups and there was much more pressure on the compliance sector to to be monitoring their staff from home and also to rely on digital tools when they weren't in the office. Are you seeing RegTech seek out compliance talent or is that a trend that is predominantly driving hires within the larger institutions?
2: It's a bit of both. We've definitely seen uh, a number of RegTechs look to hire compliance staff um, and they're generally trying to take them out of financial services. They are finding that they're getting mixed results out of that because while there's some interest, there is a concern that it takes people away from the core skill set that they've developed, because I don't think that RegTech will ever be able to pay what financial services does, because the the makeup of it just probably wouldn't make sense. And I don't think there'll be the demand to do so. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of candidates are a little bit concerned around making the move, because they're effectively moving into what is an unregulated business, although that regulated business is working very closely. And you know, doing a lot of the systems for the financial services business that are regulated by, by the SEA and, and the Bank of England. So I think there is a concern there. And we found that there's a little bit of reticence from people to make that move. Mm. But we are seeing a drive to try and do that. But they're probably suffering from the same thing that fintechs did because there is less money to spend. It's something a little bit different at the moment, which while that's interesting to some people, Unless people can see where it takes them long term, there's going to be a little bit of concern around making that. Whereas I think that there is definitely quite a big drive within the the banks and other financial institutions that are adopting these technologies for people that have some understanding of it now. There is still, I would argue, a pretty limited number of people that could realistically argue that they are technical experts on using all of these systems because a number of them are pretty new. There's lots that have been around for a long time, but a lot of them are still relatively manually operated. And there are a surprising number of banks that still do things on spreadsheet and don't even have a proper system. What
0: specifically are they doing on spreadsheets? And do you see that as being a problem?
2: So when you're looking at things like sanctions alerts, when you're looking at surveillance issues, things like that, there is a mixture of products and systems being used. You would think looking from outside that there was one real coherent way that they were doing it. But the truth is that technology, different elements of banks being brought together and mergers, whatever it might be, means that you've got different parts of organizations effectively operating on different systems. You've got some legacy systems. Some banks have tried to build some of the stuff themselves. Some are bringing in vendors to alter and upgrade certain parts of it. But a lot of the actual recording of information still does end up being a a person putting it into a spreadsheet so that it can be tracked there. I think it's going to take quite a few years before that stops. I think you're probably looking, you know, I would say within five or 10, nearly everything will be automated. AI will help guide it. But it is very surprising how many still do operate that way. And... When you've got someone that is simply inputting into an Excel spreadsheet, the danger there is that unless it's being consistently checked and double-checked and triple-checked by human beings, it's going to be very, very easy to miss things. So I think every bank and organisation that we're speaking to is moving towards a more automated system, but that will still require human oversight. I don't see this as being something that's going to suddenly replace a lot of jobs. It's something that is going to replace certain elements of the job but it will mean that the human element should actually become more interesting and it should take away the more administrative side and the bits that are, quite frankly, something that can easily be replicated on a computer.
0: Okay. The thought of running a sanctions compliance process via spreadsheet gives me a headache, but it sounds like it's going to create a lot of opportunities for new roles within these teams
2: exactly we're starting to see a lot more of these in between compliance and technology type of roles that are coming out there's a lot of interest if you look at surveillance roles of people that have come from front office that understand the systems there's a lot of projects that are involved being the go-between between the technology vendor that's coming in to implement the system and the compliance team who understands the rules but don't understand the technology yet. So I think we're starting to see a lot of hybrid roles like that and I think they will continue to grow.
0: So just stepping back on the RegTech side, what level of compliance professional, what level of seniority are they looking for and how much do they pay?
2: Quite a lot of that at this point is driven on the interim side as opposed to the permanent because a lot Mm -hmm. of that is large-scale implementation projects. So there's a mixed bag of skill sets that they're looking for there. People with a mixture of change and financial crime are particularly interesting because there's a number of new products out there for sanctions alerts and things like that. Mm -hmm. People that have had good experience of using previous surveillance tools, but understand what it means to actually work with a business to implement change to go in there look at systems and say okay well this is actually how it affects us we now need to code it up and tune it to work with that so I think that it's probably been more driven there so you're looking at more day rates for that as opposed to lots and lots of permanent hiring but what normally starts out as that will eventually then filter down into more permanent hires when they've got them established and then they need the people to do the manual oversight as we discussed
0: okay Presumably this activity has been driven by the pandemic, by the fact that that prompted those at the top level of these large financial institutions to to realise the need for digital tools to help compliance executives do their job. Is there any other way that you expect the pandemic to have a long lasting impact on the compliance market?
2: From a technology and a way they do their role perspective, I would say that's certainly going to be the biggest one. The other major impact is just on the long-term way that people like to work, which is what it's had an effect across all sectors and all industries, really. I think that... There is a demand now for flexible working. There is a pushback from most businesses on 100% remote. And there are still a number of candidates that have been used to doing that over the last couple of years, have convinced themselves that, well, I've been able to do this quite effectively. I think I can continue to work that way. Whereas I think businesses see it slightly differently. I would still argue that there is a strong strong sense of needing to be on the ground to actually establish relationships with the front office staff, with the traders, with whoever it may be so that you can get ahead of issues. You want to be able to have a relationship where you shouldn't be friends with them because ultimately you are there to police the department, but you should be on friendly terms whereby they don't feel that they want to be hiding things from you. And I think that's very difficult to do when you're only ever available on email or video conference. I think those that want to do 100% remote working going forward will start to see some of their opportunities dry up a little bit. Whereas I think those that are happy to do a little bit of a mixture, then I think that most organizations will cater to that. There's been some notable examples of some large American banks that have decided that they see it as an anomaly and a bit of an abomination and want everyone back five days a week. The feedback that we get from candidates is the idea of having to go back in five days a week is not particularly appealing. And we've certainly seen that candidates have said to us that they simply would not consider roles that are pushing that. It's almost not just the time spent in the office but it's what it can mean for the culture of the firm and it can put into people's minds that there is very much that culture of presenteeism and i think people see that as something of the past and not really the way that things are going there are now enough businesses out there that are offering the kind of flexibility that they want that they're not really prepared to consider that
0: are they struggling to recruit talent in the compliance space or do you expect them to struggle
2: I think it would be more a case that I probably expect them to struggle. The couple that we're talking to, what they do have on their side is they do enjoy a certain cachet in the market. They are two of the big names and they're ones that people will still look at, certainly at the more junior end. And they do tend to often hire slightly more junior people and train them up. But we've had a number of people that have said to us that they just would not consider going to that type of environment. So we've only really started this proper return to the office. So it's a bit too early to give a definitive answer on it. But our take would be that I think unless they do accept that the world has changed, that they're going to find that they will miss out on quite a few people. A lot of individuals, let's face it, are quite used to having a bit more flexibility, slightly better work-life balance. It allows a much easier home life for people with children. And I think people are are naturally going to be quite wary of going somewhere where they are being so strong on that view. So I'd be very surprised if it doesn't have quite a negative impact in the next 6, 12, 18 months.
0: Okay, that's really interesting. Those candidates that are saying that they would not be interested in roles at those firms that are being specific about wanting staff back in the office full time, what level of seniority are they?
2: So you're looking at that senior AVP, VP, maybe junior director type of level. Once you get more senior than that, I think there's probably an understanding that if you're going to run a big team, you do need to be there. To be able to to manage it and at the really more junior end the truth is i think the type of person that would want to go to those organizations would want to go to them regardless because they see it as having the name and the training and everything that kind of goes with that whereas i think it's more those people that are sort of in the middle of their career that are either they may not even have a family yet but they are used to being able to have that little bit more flexibility And They are the majority of hires. I mean, if you were to look at the market currently and over the last quite a few years, you're probably talking 60, 70% of hiring is within that space. So that's a big portion of the market to be creating a situation where you're just slightly less appealing than your competitors.
0: Right. So there's potential for a bit of a knowledge gap around that kind of five to 10 year post-graduation section of the compliance space.
2: Yes, correct. I mean, and they, these are the people that are the engine rooms of teams. They're the ones that they do the checking. They are the first port to call for advisory. So if you are losing out on those people, that's going to really hurt teams, which is why I suspect eventually they will have to accept that support staff, which effectively compliance is, they will have to accept that they're viewed differently to their front office teams and not have a one-size-fits-all approach.
0: Yeah, you can see how that could become a real problem. You've mentioned the desire for compliance executives that have some knowledge of sanctions, compliance, obviously, that's driven by the the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the various governments reaction to that is the war in Ukraine changing the type of roles being recruited for and if so, how?
2: It's obviously garnered a huge amount of press attention and it's probably brought the word sanctions into the mainstream more so than it had ever been before. I think what it's done is it's driven both a need for people that can really drive. What does it mean? How does it affect us? What does it mean to the business? And there are still very few people that are real expert advisory specialists within that space. There's lots of people that can do transaction monitoring and look for a red alert and say, okay, this looks a bit suspicious, we need to investigate that. But there are very few that really understand the implications and, and the legal side uh, to the degree that is needed. And we're starting to see a real push for those type of professionals. The truth is at the moment, there just aren't many. And if they are, they are in high demand and they will definitely get a premium on their salary. We recently placed a global head of sanctions with a very, very well-known fintech who ended up paying north of 200,000 for a role that we probably would have previously seen being a 140,000 pound role simply because they needed that expertise and they just weren't finding it at the salary that they went out to market for. So I would imagine that there's going to be a huge amount of internal training um, on this to try and drive it. I think we'll start to see a push towards doing compliance-specific graduate schemes, but with a real focus on these type of skill sets. Because at the moment, there just aren't a huge amount of people out there. So people can want to hire it, but the truth is we simply can't find them people. So I'd say that's probably the biggest impact that it's had. It hasn't suddenly created a huge swathe of recruitment within that space, but I think a lot of departments are looking at what they can do. And I think that's also then driving them to say, okay, well, we can't simply do this by adding hundreds and hundreds of people to the team. So they're trying to do it a mixture between adding good regulatory technology that can help them spot the alert and then have the expertise to be able to review that, understand what it means, and then those that actually bring in the opinions. I think a lot of sanctions knowledge is still probably driven actually within legal teams because it's very legalistic terminology. It's very complicated stuff. And that's not to say that compliance officers can't do it, but it does tend to require eventually a a legal opinion on it. And we would probably say that a lot of that is driven by that side of things currently. Although naturally I find it starts there And then more expertise grows within compliance teams, and then it sort of shifts across that way.
0: Right. So there's a lack of talent in the sanctions compliance space currently. Is there a lack of talent in any other aspect of the compliance industry?
2: In terms of specific skill sets, that's probably the area where we're seeing that there is the biggest lack. I think if we were to look at the asset management industry, there's been a lot of growth within distribution and marketing compliance. So this is obviously all of the brochures, the marketing material, the leaflets, that asset managers put out there, and that mainly is looking to protect retail investors such as you and I. So the wording needs to be clear, it can't be confusing, it can't be misleading in particular. And there's a lot of different rules across different jurisdictions. Traditionally, that was done by a a, a generalist, or it was often considered an area where people weren't that desperate to do it often was not as well paid as other areas within compliance within those businesses. And naturally, if the pay isn't there, it doesn't tend to attract the best. Whereas I think now there is a real drive to improve that. And we've had numerous clients contact us this year looking for exactly that type of skill set. And again, we've really struggled to find good people within that unless they're prepared to pay a real premium because there have always been a few real specialists, but they know they're specialists. And they charge themselves out at significant day rates because they know what they can bring to come in and and drive that. That's often not needed, but it's difficult when they're looking to recruit it and pay still a relatively below average salary for what is a new skill set. And we're simply struggling to find people as a result. They're probably the two main areas. If we would look broader than that, I think it's just that ability to look at the big picture within compliance. I think that's something that compliance has really improved upon in recent years. If you went back when I first started recruiting into this market in 2010, the type of profile of people who worked in compliance and their approach to things was very different than it is now. It was considered a part of the business that was relatively set back. It was considered something that was sort of checking after and signing things off. Whereas now It's very much business facing, you need to be commercially aware of how what you're doing impacts the bottom line of the business, but you also need to be strong enough to stand up to the business and say, no, you're doing this in the wrong way, but then you need to offer an alternative rather than simply saying no. And I think it's that ability to walk that fine line between being strong enough to keep things done in the right way, but commercially savvy enough to understand that if the business isn't making money, there isn't much of a need for a compliance department. It's those soft skills that go with that. I would say separates a really good compliance officer from an okay one. And that still can be quite hard to discern. It's certainly very difficult for people to judge on a CV. How
0: best can an individual develop those softer skills? Do you see those softer skills being more effective in individuals that have perhaps joined a firm at the graduate level and got to know it very well over the years as they progress up the ladder or are there other ways to acquire those skills?
2: coming up through the graduate route and starting in compliance and seeing that as, as a career as opposed to this thing that you do when you've stopped working in the front office has created a very different mentality around it where they really see themselves as an important part of the business and they are legitimately there to challenge and push back. Whereas I think that people who moved from front office into compliance, and some people have done that very, very successfully, but there are numerous examples of people that have done it, and probably slightly struggled to adapt to the different relationship that they then have with people that might have even been peers and colleagues previously, or certainly they would be the type of people that consider that way. Now, they're probably very good at developing a relationship with them, but are they capable of developing the right kind of relationship where, as I say, you are friendly, but you're not friends because you are there to police what's going on. And I think it's that ability to walk that sort of tightrope that is really key. And that's what we've really seen develop massively over the last few years. And the impact that we are seeing from those sort of graduate schemes is huge now. The type of person that now goes into it previously would have considered going into a front office focused role or um, a more legal background, you know, where they're actually saying, no, actually, I see compliance as a legitimate career. The, The financial compensation is there and the career trajectory is there as well. So I think that's had a huge impact, but I think it's more that ability to see compliance for what it actually is now that you develop by coming up from the very beginning as opposed to transferring across. But those soft skills are something that the right type of business makes a big difference. If you go in and you are, you're too siloed or you're kept away from liaising with the front office, then I think it can be quite difficult to develop them. So I don't think that there's a one way to do it. But you've got to be smart about your career moves. You've got to look at the type of team and indeed the type of manager that you've got. Have you got someone that's going to work with you to actually really develop those side of things? But I can't help but feel that some people are just naturally blessed with stronger communication skills, stronger ability to read a room and, and, and see signals. I think those things can be improved, but I do think it's, it's easier to improve them from a higher starting point.
0: In amongst all this hiring, are there any firms that are finding themselves on the wrong side of that trend? Are there any types of firms that are particularly losing staff and, and any particular areas that are impacted by that as well?
2: The bigger banks have always been susceptible to losing people to smaller institutions. It's still an appealing move. People moving across from banking into the buy side, so be that asset managers, Wealth managers, hedge funds, whatever it might be, tends to be an appealing one. And I think we're also seeing people now wanting to make that move into those fintech businesses as well. I would say fintechs probably get 80 or 90% of their staff from bigger banks. And that's not really a reflection of the industry. It's a reflection on the size of the departments, more so than anything else. The size of the team naturally means that your role will be narrower because everyone's got to do their own silo position. Now, it's obviously the narrow role within a huge institution. But you are only ever going to be focused on one thing, and you need to move around to be able to get, you know, a, a little bit more experience than that. Whereas if you go somewhere smaller, you know, generally smaller asset managers or, or fintechs allow you to take on what we'd always term that generalist role, where you do a little bit of everything. Now, eventually, you might want to specialise a little bit more. But when you're at that more Mid level that can often be very appealing because it 's a little bit more interesting you 're not focused on one thing you get a little bit more variety to your day. I think also, if you look at the banks over the last few years, the truth is is that most of them aren 't making the type of profits that they used to, although last year actually was quite a good year. there was a lot of m a activity, a lot of deals going through, so actually I think a lot of people did okay last year but because of that probably the compensation on the bonus and variable side hasn't competed with some other sectors. So I'd say that's probably the area where we've seen more movement out of than others, but it's still an area where it is very appealing. When you complete your degree, most people have heard of Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan, whereas a lot will never have heard of your smaller asset manager. BlackRock perhaps being one of the few examples where they probably have. But that sort of cachet of the big name will always attract people at that sort of entry level. And they tend to be the ones that hoover up most of the good talent at the graduate level. But then they also tend to bleed a lot of that talent back out into the wider industry after that. So we've definitely seen a bit of movement there. But I do need to caution that. They're not losing people hand over fist. It is the slow trickle as opposed to a stream. Some of the broker dealers has probably seen a few people leave as well. There is a perception that some of those businesses, their business model requires them to be sometimes quite risky in their approach and and it can be a little bit frustrating for a compliance professional who feels that they're giving advice and sometimes it's not getting listened to. We've seen a fair bit of movement from those type of firms out into other parts of the industry just because they're concerned from a reputational perspective.
0: That's really interesting. Jumping now to a different topic, how are you seeing Brexit impact the recruitment space? now if if at all?
2: There was a lot of concern and some headline grabbing numbers of the perception that we were going to lose half the industry out there. It certainly hasn't played out that way. I I read a report the other day, something circa about 8,000 roles have have, have left the city and, and gone to the EU. The majority of people have stayed. London retains its crown as by far and away the biggest and most attractive financial market within Europe. There has had to be a shift, there has had to be local offices set up that have had to be staffed. But we've seen no great movement from a compliance perspective whatsoever. And London continues to be a very, very busy market.
0: It's interesting that you say that London really is the hub in terms of compliance recruitment in the UK, because for a number of years now, larger financial institutions have been shifting some of their compliance roles, if not all their compliance function to satellite cities within the UK. Are you seeing that trend continuing or what's happening around hiring outside of London in the UK?
2: so you are right it's something that's been talked about and has been done for quite a a, a long period obviously birmingham manchester southwest edinburgh they're the main hubs leeds and, and, and nottingham slightly less the truth is is the majority of it tends to be the more low level work that's moved out there one of the very large banks was trying to attract people by almost paying london salaries to move people out there but we still see the majority of senior level hiring based In London, it's more some of the more basic KYC teams and things like that that are in the hubs. There are obvious exceptions to that because there are certain banks that have got very large hubs in the likes of Edinburgh and other places. But we still probably see it being at least six out of 10 roles being recruited in London. And it's very rare that we get asked to to work on the biggest roles, the heads of departments, global heads, anything like that, that aren't London. There'll be a need to travel. And even if they are theoretically based in those hubs, it's more often than not a little bit of a fudge in that it's done on a relatively remote working basis. And actually they still spend a fair bit of time in the London office, a bit of time in those offices, but they can allocate the headcount to those offices. The talent pool at that level is still very London centric and it'll take years to balance that out. The government's obviously got its leveling up agenda. There's all kinds of things that are driving that. And I would expect slowly over time that probably more will happen and potentially post pandemic, when people look at how they live their lives, Do they want to be in London? I I don't know. But we've certainly not seen anything that's radically changed things at the moment. The simple fact is that the vast majority of heads of department are still London-based. Trying to get them to uproot their families to other parts of the country is difficult. But what they are prepared to do is say, okay, well, my family will stay here. I will still need to spend a reasonable portion of my time in London. But I'm happy to go and spend whatever period of time it may be in the other hub. And I think with hopefully improving transport links and other bits then that should probably become even more achievable. But I can't see anything at the moment that suggests that we're going to suddenly see a mass movement out of London.
0: Okay. Are there any mistakes that firms make in the hiring process?
2: The speed at which people make decisions is probably something that is the easiest for firms to correct and one that still a lot of places struggle to do. We absolutely understand that making the right decision is important. You've got to get them in front of the right individuals. But in a market that's moving quickly and people are likely to have three or four or four and five things on the go, if you take a few days or even a week sometimes to make a decision even longer, the likelihood is someone else will move quicker um and 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 do that and that can actually help people get round even not paying the highest salary but they're showing the most amount of interest and they're moving quickly um and therefore they're able to secure people that potentially they wouldn't be able to get otherwise we always advise clients that if you are looking to hire the easiest thing you can do to help yourself is to make a decision quickly but we do appreciate that there's got to be a robust process to get the right type of individual in there you should be able to define what your interview process is at the beginning This is probably more of an issue with smaller firms where there's someone that will pop up last minute and say, oh, no, I think I should speak to that person. And again, it's just people like certainty. They like to understand, right, this is what I'm going to face at the beginning. This is how I'm going to get through it. And when they're at the end, they expect that to be the end. It can slightly put people off because it gives people the impression that, okay, they're not really quite sure about me. So they want to get someone else to do it which actually more often than not it's not the case it's simply that someone in a same position is like well i'm going to interact with them i feel that i should probably go and speak to that person too but it's just about how that gets positioned
0: okay and how is the compliance recruitment space changing in amongst all this activity
2: It's a career where I think people can earn a lot of money and you can really actually do some very, very interesting work. So I think it's simply a case that it just continues to evolve. The quality of people getting into it improves. The perception of what it means to be a compliance officer continues to evolve. How people are going out there and recruiting is changing a lot. There's obviously a lot of in-house recruitment teams for larger institutions and LinkedIn and the way that you can go and find people has changed. I think that there is that need to to look beyond what's on a CV or on a profile and actually be able to understand, does someone fundamentally understand what it means to be a compliance officer? In-house teams naturally play an important part. And I think if we go back actually to some mistakes the firms made, I think some in-house teams view external recruiters as competition sometimes as opposed to partners. And I think it works best when it's a partnership. We're there when you're not able to source it yourself to work with you we shouldn't be seen as a competitor in any way because then it, it becomes quite a difficult relationship between the two
0: okay so lastly what's the one upcoming or current challenge that no one's talking about that you think the industry needs to pay more attention to
2: it's really just that ability to bring together technology with understanding how to actually work with a business i think that People are talking about it, but I still don't think a lot of organizations really understand what it means to be able to actually, anyone can talk about using a bit of technology, but actually implementing that and how that affects the business itself and therefore being able to work with people to understand, okay, so right, okay, so we're doing this, so you need to do that. And I think it's just that understanding of how you bring that together. I still see that as being quite separate. A lot of the time businesses see it as, right, we've got our technical people that do the checking and we've got our advisory people that do that. But actually, I think there's probably a need to bring together a little bit more of that, of a bridge where those two skill sets come together. I think that the interaction between first, second, and third lines still probably needs some work as well. So there's a lot of new compliance roles based within the business. So actually based within the first line of where the business sits, compliance is considered a second line role where you're slightly set back and you're there to check what's happening within the business. And then you've got the third line, which is audit, which is there to check the checkers. We've started to see, and I think it's a real positive, some movement from first to second, second to first, second to third, and and, and vice versa. And I think people that really understand how those three things fit together is what's really going to keep a business safe. And we're still not seeing enough of that. But I think we're starting to see just the seeds of that happening.
0: Well, that has been a very interesting conversation. I feel like we could talk about this for hours, but sadly, we've run out of time. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you for joining Following the Rules.
2: Thank you very much, Lucy. I've really enjoyed it.
0: You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels. It helps other people get to know us too.